This is episode 63 of Ethics and Culture Cast from the Danicola Center for Ethics and Culture. Welcome to episode 63 of Ethics and Culture Cast from Notre Dame's Danicola Center for Ethics and Culture. I'm Ken Hellenius, the Communications Specialist at the Center. In this episode, we chat with novelist Christopher Bea, editor of Harper's and author of The Index of Self-Destructive Acts, a novel that made the 2020 long list for the National Book Award. We chat about the process of writing, how his own life experiences have made their way into his books, and how he understands his own work as a Catholic writer. Let's sit down together for this delightful conversation. Well, Christopher Bea, thank you so much for coming to be on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? Where did you do your studies? Kind of those sorts of things. Okay. Um, I, I grew up in Manhattan. I have managed over the course of 42 years to make it all the way to Brooklyn, where I am now. <laughs> um, I attended Catholic schools growing up, a, a, a lay-run Catholic boys' school for elementary school, a Jesuit uh, high school. Those two have been somewhat combined into the school, the, the K-12 through Catholic boys' school, St. Albert's, that features in my novels. I attended Princeton after that. I studied creative writing and literature at Princeton, including writing a thesis under Joyce Carol Oates. I did an MFA at the New School back in New York and then, you know, was trying to, to, to live the dream. To, uh, um, I, I spent most of my 20s uh, after graduate school, working on a novel that did not wind up getting published. That is the fabled desk drawer novel that a lot of writers have. And then in my late 20s, I took an internship at Harper's Magazine and uh, with a small break have been working there ever since. And I'm now the editor of the magazine. And I have also since that time published four books, a memoir, and three novels. And you're still writing as the editor of, of Harper's? I'm still writing as the editor of Harper's. As I mentioned to you off microphone, I am taking right now a, a, a leave from the magazine to work on a new book. Um, but most of my writing has happened while doing a full-time job, which is you know, quite common for literary novelists. You talk about that desk drawer novel. Does that ever – does those ever make it to the light of day? Do you have hope that yours will? I, I don't really. I know of a number of writers who have uh, cannibalized in certain ways that Destor novel. It, it is true about uh, younger writers, I think, that if you set them on a particular task and they have a focused thing that they are going to be doing, 
they can do it at a very high level if the sort of inborn talent is there. You can be hopeless in the larger architecture of a novel and still be able to render a nice moment. You know, That's why there are some poets that are astonishingly good when they're 17, 18 years old, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, you have, you know, people like Rambeau, who, whose entire output was done before he was 22, I think. Yeah. Um, uh, there's no novelist like that. Um, but um, I think that a, a young novelist can uh, sustain uh, writing at a very, very high level, potentially uh, for the length of a lyric uh, poem, you know, for a paragraph or something like that. And so there are writers I know who they go back and they find those paragraphs in the old work when they need them. Yeah. In my case, the book, which you know does not really uh, bear dwelling on too much, but it was um, a very, very particular world. And it was not the world of the novels that I have published. So it was useless to me on that level. Um, there are no, and, and I was writing in a, in, a, in a very different style, I think, than I write now. So there's there are no paragraphs that I could ever uh, reuse. I, at a certain point, I think after I published my first two novels, I had my agent, uh, you know, who, who has been my agent for, for a long time, but I had already published my first book when I started working with her. So she had never read this novel. She knew it existed. And I said, maybe I should revisit this. And, and she said, well, why don't you send it to me? So I found a file in my emails or something. I, I did not look at it. I did not open the file. I just – I couldn't bear to do that. And I just sent her a, a, a 10-year-old email. I just forwarded it to her. And she read it and she was very polite about it. <laughs> but she said um, – it's it's not something we can send out in the condition it's in. It's not as if now that you're sort of established, you know, it, it, it's um, – and the question you have to ask yourself is you're at, at this moment in your career. Do you want to move forward to whatever the next big challenge is or do you want to go back to the writer you were when you were 24 years old and spend at least six months, you know, editing that writer? And once you put it that way, you know, it was one of those questions that has its answer built into its form. Um, <laughs> I, I had to recognize Leading that. Leading the witness, yes. as it were. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I think I think at that point I gave up on this ever seeing the light of day. I, 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 don't, I don't imagine uh, that I will, I, will, I will arrive at a point where I say – now, what I want to do is not go on to the next challenge, but go back to this thing that I did when I was 24 years old. Well, so I read your latest novel, The Index of Self-Destructive Acts, and I was immediately pulled in by the grand debate among baseball fans, that of the sabermetricians versus the philosophers, and even there's a, a third, the people who just enjoy the game as the game, right? Um, and the And I found these to be represented in your book by characters who reminded me of Nate Silver and George F. Will. Now, in your own baseball fandom, do you find yourself leaning towards one or the other or the third of these uh, approaches to baseball? Um, I think I have a bit of all of them. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I guess I don't have the third one, the, the, the just watch just the, the game. game you yeah. know? Um, I 
I have a, a good part of me that is a mythologizer and a good part of me that is interested in the way that you can talk about and have arguments about the game with some level of uh, statistical precision. Um, the fact that both of these worldviews hold a certain appeal to me and that I see both of them also as as limited in certain ways or, or maybe um, – uh, prone to certain kinds of abuses of the truth um, was what made putting them in contact with each other interesting to me. Um, if I merely had one way of looking at these things that I thought was the right way and another way that I thought was a misguided way and I wanted to demonstrate this, I would have written an essay. You know, it, it's it's part of what a novel is for um, is putting different worldviews in contact with each other um, without necessarily feeling like you have to come out of it knowing which one the author embraces or um, uh, knowing which one has sort of won the, the debate. Um, so I, I appreciate the fact that, that, that you asked that question because it suggests that you cannot tell from from reading it. And, yeah. you know, one thing that's been pretty gratifying to me about the book is people who are in the sort of like literary milieu that I am in, let's say, uh, who take for granted that the romanticized mythological narrative way of understanding reality is the right way, or certainly the way, the one that that a novelist would favor. See the 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 treatment of the Sam Waxworth character, who's the character who is a statistician who um, bears some loose biographical similarities to Nate Silver. Um, sees that as sort of s satirical treatment. I am mm -hmm. sending up this way of understanding things or of being in the world. But the book found a a, a real audience among the within the world of statistical analysis. So Bill James, who was the godfather of sabermetrics uh, and who created the the stat, the index of self-destructive acts that that I use for the title, he he read the book and was very kind to me about it and 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 found it very interesting. Rob Nyer, who is a, a baseball writer who um worked, I believe, as Bill James's assistant for a while, but is of the next generation of of sabermetricians and um, was an advisor or, you know, interviewed by Michael Lewis uh, during the writing of Moneyball. He also was, was, was wrote very kindly to me about the book and did an interview with me for something. And so for them, they don't see it as, as uh, a, a satire of quantification because I actually did the work of trying to have Sam have the mindset that such a person actually has, and I did the reading, and I did the, I attempted to do the sort of imaginative work. So you know, they see that there are times where his his tendencies get him go to the extreme and get him in a little bit of trouble. Mm -hmm. But the, certainly the same is true for Frank Doyle and his tendency to mythologize. He becomes, you know, detached from reality entirely. You know, yeah. um, but the um, literary readers of the book did not see Frank's uh, extremes as an indictment of a literary approach to understanding reality. But they saw uh, Waxworth's extremes as an indictment of the quantitative approach. Yeah. Um, it's meant to be working through um, the 
the strengths and weaknesses of both of those possibilities. What you described there is kind of what it's what St. Thomas does in the Summa, right? Present the absolute best arguments of your opponent and do so in a way that's charitable and get into their mind so you can get at what they're yes. talking about. Yes, but I would go a step further and just say that they're not my opponent. Um, <laughs> right. You know, it, it's not um, – and, and, and now I'm just speaking qua novelist, not as a human being. I, I mean, if I'm being honest, um, I am much more – just in terms of natural disposition, but perhaps also ideologically on the side of a narrative understanding of reality. I am much more conscious of, of, of the limits of a quantified view of the world um, as a person. But as a novelist, I really um, – that's not what I'm writing out of. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, I, I, do not, I do not want the book to feel as though – the, the, the novelist writing the book has a side that he is on. Yeah. Well, your first book, The Whole Five Feet, was a chronicle of your experience reading the Harvard classics over the span of what you've referred to as the hardest year of your life, a year of illness and loss. Uh, it's impossible to miss, uh, for the, uh, as a reader, how much you draw upon your own personal experience in the index, especially through the characters of Lucy and Margot, who have kind of similar – their story arcs. Um, do you find some consolation in writing about your own suffering and grief? Or is – do you – see this even as writing about your own suffering? Well, no, it's an interesting question. I, you know, um, I don't think of my fiction writing as being autobiographical at all. But you would, you would know better than I would, in a way, as someone who has just read these two books, you know, which were, were written a dec- more than a decade apart. Right. Um, I certainly, you know, there's a character in this novel that has a, a serious bout of Lyme disease. I, I had a serious bout of Lyme disease. I'm writing out of my personal experience in that way. Yeah. Um, but I didn't choose to give this character this disease because I wanted an opportunity to work through my own feelings about it. I, I gave her the disease – I mean – in part because it, it made narrative sense to do it, you know. I wanted her to be in a particular predicament. I wanted her to um, have certain challenges. And I had to hand this experience that created certain challenges. And so that's that's what I fell back on, you know. And I, I think that it's common among novelists to be somewhat resistant to autobiographical readings of their works, even when their works – seem just obviously autobiographical and even to be playing up on it. This was a game that Philip Roth was constantly playing of, mm-hmm. you know, he had a very, he had a public image. People knew him and he, they, they knew him from Portnoy's. And then, you know, he created a writer character who shared a lot of his known public biographical details and was the author of a book very much like Portnoy's. And then when people read the work as autobiographical, he said, what are you doing, you Philistines? Like, that's not what literature is. That's not what fiction is. And of course, like, he was kind, he was, he was inviting that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 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 do, I do think that for him, I would imagine, right, those biographical details were just the furniture, 
and he was using the furniture he had at hand, you know, mm-hmm. um, rather than building a chair from scratch. You know, he had one perfectly serviceable one right here, and he just pulled it into the room. Um, it wasn't what animated him about the writing. And so for him, I think it genuinely, it, it didn't feel to him like what he was doing was autobiographical writing. You know? And I think similarly, I think if someone were to read my nonfiction, you know, personal memoiristic writing and read my novels in, in quick succession after that, they would be able to point to things and say, this has this parallel. And his life. I don't. I'm obviously not a public figure in the way of Philip Roth. You'd have to have read my work to know about my life. But if someone were to do that, they 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 might have a similar impression. They'd say, "Well, he's clearly taking his experience and working through it in this way." But when you're sitting down to write, that's just not how it feels. You know, that's not, to me at least, what the process is about. And very often, you don't even realize when you're doing it. I mean, obviously, I realized when I used Lyme disease in the novel that I was writing out of an experience that I had. But there are other things that people who have known me have pointed out to me after the fact in, in my work as, as relating in certain ways to things that happened in my life. And I just wasn't conscious of it at all. You know, mm-hmm. um, That's just not what the process feels like from the inside. Makes sense. Well, here in 2021, some, what, 13, 14 years after you finished the project of reading all 52 volumes of the Harvard Classics, what works from that year of reading have stuck with you and, and why? Gee, I, you know, a lot of the works so, – so for listeners who don't know, the Harvard Classics are a 51-volume great book set that were uh, put together by longtime Harvard president – uh, Charles Eliot, and um, the idea was that that everything that uh, you needed for a liberal education could fit onto a five foot shelf. So this was the five foot shelf, um, and it was one of the first of the kind of great books sets. It came out in 1909, a bit before the sort of mid century middle brow U Chicago great books and book of the month club kind of stuff. It was you know one of one of the first of these, and and it, and it aims to be in a certain way comprehensive. So. Um, there are a lot of books in it. You know, there's some Shakespeare in it. There's Plato and Homer and that I have read quite a – continued to read since then, you know. Mm-hmm. And so they obviously, you know, stick with me but they don't necessarily stick to me as – stick with me as things I read in the Harvard classics. Um, there are a couple of – you know – Pascal's uh, Pensée, I think um, I had not read before um, and has become very important to me. And because a lot of what he raised spoke very directly to what I was experiencing that year, when I read him now, I, I do closely identify him with having come upon him in that context. I suspect that I would have read him by this point. Now, anyway, given where my life has has led me and the kind of reader I am, but I had not. So, so, so he's someone that 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 really has stuck with me. Uh, some books I have not reread, but have just stuck with me as great reading experiences. Um, the autobiography of a Renaissance artist, Benvenuto Cellini, um, who you know th- this this book used to be in the in the canon. You know, there's a mm-hmm. reason that it got included in this. Um, 
And uh, it used to be something that, that, you know, most kind of liberally educated people uh, had read or were at least familiar with. It was also, it's a very dramatic, action-packed uh, memoir. Um, and it was the subject of, you know, operas and all sorts of other so so it, it had a cultural presence that it doesn't have now now people some people know the opera but if you don't know that most people are just are not familiar with the book or they might be art historians who know yeah, they saw a salt cellar yeah, or something exactly yeah, yeah. um uh and it's a it's just a wonderful account of 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 the dynamics at play uh in renaissance italy and and just a lot of fun you know, and that's a book that I I, I I really doubt I would have come across otherwise. So I'm 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 grateful for that. He's the guy that really makes makes you wonder when you describe somebody as a true Renaissance man. Yeah. Do you mean Cellini or yeah, do you mean yeah, Michelangelo? No, there, that's true. Well Michelangelo <laughs> well, comes exactly. off a little questionably in the book too, but <laughs> but but yes. And he, you know, committed murder and he he lived wildly and there was in this odd political landscape of you know uh some some areas being under the control of the pope and some areas being under control of various different of you know the medici and other um sort of italian nation state areas um and all of them being very consumed by civic pride mm -hmm. and wanting great artists so he could sort of hop around and get himself in trouble somewhere and get himself exiled and then agree to make a work of art for uh the ruling family in uh the area next door and be taken in there and all of that is just it's it's just sort of fascinating to read about yeah one of the things i appreciated in the whole five feet was you would admit sometimes you're just reading to get through it and i mean certainly all students have had this experience right but even as a reader do you find yourself doing that sometimes not necessarily, you know, outside I don't, this context. Well, so, so I, I, I you know, I, I have a, I have a day job as a magazine editor. I do a lot of reading for that job, mm -hmm. and it's very often not bad. I, 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 I spend very little time reading stuff that's truly bad, but I, I read stuff that's good but not great. Mm -hmm. Um. And I have to figure out what is or is not working. Uh, and I have to be constantly sort of evaluating. I, I, I'm not reading just to get lost in it. Even when it's great, I'm, I'm, I'm trying not to get swept away in the way that you get swept away by great writing. Sure. So that's a particular kind of writing. In part because of that, when I'm reading for pleasure, I, I just read stuff that is great. You know, I, I spend a lot of time reading classics, basically. I, I, I spend a lot of time reading 19th and early 20th century novels because I do – not because I think fiction has fallen off terribly, but because, you know, the test of time does this job mm -hmm. of Sifting. you are only reading the best of what was written in 1890 because if it wasn't the best thing written in 1890, it wouldn't even be getting published anymore, you know. Yeah. Um, so I just have a very high success rate and I, and, I, and I stop reading stuff I don't like. And 
when I read contemporary fiction. You know, I, 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 I definitely have, you know, I have the experience of reading stuff that everyone says they love and, and then reading it and just thinking it's not that good. And, and that's subjective. Um, but um, I will give up on books very quickly in hmm. that case. Note to any author out there. What? Book him early. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Well, you have joined us here at Notre Dame as part of our annual fall conference, as part of a panel discussion alongside former Ethics and Culture Cast guests, Joshua Wren, Jessica Houghton Wilson, and James Matthew Wilson. Uh, the session is entitled How to Read and Write Like a Catholic. Now, you wrote in The Whole Five Feet about your own experience of serving as an altar boy in your younger days and then consciously leaving the practice of the faith as a young adult. Yet, the questions of faith and its effects continue to suffuse your own writing. So what does it mean to you to read and write like a Catholic? Well, the first thing I would say is that, uh, just to inform the rest of the answer, is that I, I, I have since returned uh, to the church. I, I am a practicing Catholic. And that process from how I went from being the uh, the the person um, described in, or just who is describing himself in the whole five feet, to who I am now is the subject of uh, the book that I am now working on. Um, so, having said that, as a writer who is a Catholic, how do I read and write like a Catholic? So that the 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 title of the panel comes from the title of. Joshua Wren's new book, which I, I admire very much the book. And I suspect that the, the, the title is slightly tongue-in-cheek, um, just in the sense that you know the book itself, which is a, a reading of, of many different Catholic uh, writers, myself included, um, you know, it makes very clear that there is no one way mm -hmm. to uh, write like a Catholic, and there certainly is no one way to read like a Catholic. And thank God for that, uh, you know, because that would mean if there were, it would mean that we have to choose between uh, a sensibility like Don DeLillo's and a sensibility like Sigrid Unset's, um, which are, you know, so, so radically different that it's very difficult to even place them in the same category. Mm -hmm. um, and the world is much richer for both of them, and both of their sensibilities are, I think, meaningfully Catholic sensibilities. As far as how to write like a Catholic, when it, uh, this is similar to, 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 I guess, what I was saying before about not wanting the, the, the novel to be about showing, you know, which side you're on. You know, a, 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 a writer, even a Catholic writer, doesn't sit down with the Catholic imagination to hand while, <laughs> while writing, you have your own imagination, your own particular imagination, and you do what you can with it. And it is informed by many things, not least of which are your metaphysical and ethical commitments. And those are important to what you're doing, I think. But, but it's not, to me at least, at all clear moment to moment while writing how they're coming to bear on these things. I don't I don't I don't sit down to write and think what novel does this broken world need right now? What novel is going to is going to heal this world? Um I don't think 
what is what novel is going to make readers you know return to the fold i don't i you know i just i i'm i'm not trying to write catholic novels um uh now it it it, it seems to me if my novels were not recognizable by a critic like Joshua who thinks about these things as catholic novels that would either mean I'm not putting enough of myself in the novels or uh, there isn't enough of Catholicism in me. So, so, so that would be, that would be a, a a problem for me, but it's not, it's not uh, that's that how exactly that plays out, I think is more for the critic to say. Kind of like the furniture you were describing earlier. It's part of the furniture you bring into the world. It is, it is, but it's also, I do think that, so uh, the there are there are different ways that a novel can be Catholic, and and one of them is that it can be about Catholic communities, um, uh, and it can be Catholic in the way that another novel can be an immigrant novel, and a novel of the immigrant experience, or a novel of the African American experience, or a novel of the queer experience, or something like that. You know, there are a lot of different ways of being Catholic in 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 America. And, and the world, of course, but, you know, there is the, you know, largely Hispanic-influenced Catholicism of the Southwest. There is the particular Catholicism of a place like Indiana and the Midwest. There is the mostly Irish Catholicism of the Northeast. That is – that's what I come from. Mm-hmm. Um, is sort of Irish Catholic New York, and and I do write about that community. That feels to me like the furniture, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I write about that because it's what I have to hand. You right. Know? But there's obviously that's only one of the things that one is as a Catholic as a member of a particular milieu, um, and one would hope it's not the most important thing one is. You know, so another way to be a Catholic novelist is to be a Catholic novelist in the way that, you know, someone else would be an existentialist novelist or something like that, um, which is to say that your sense of the way that reality is ordered um, uh, informs the way in which you attempt to order reality on the page, um, and that's not the furniture. You know, that's 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 much more. Uh, profoundly important to what you're doing, you know. So it is an interesting fact that the one sort of universally beloved American Catholic writer, Flannery O'Connor, was herself a cradle Catholic, but, um, you know, was not from one of these places I just mentioned, the northern Midwest, the northeast, the southwest, that have these historical connections to Catholicism. She was from the historically Protestant south, and she wrote mostly about Protestant southerners. She was not using the furniture of Catholicism. Right. You know? She was a Catholic writer in a very, very different way. It was about um, her metaphysical and ethical commitments. Um, it is also true about Toni Morrison, who is a, a, another great, great writer who is less thought of as a Catholic writer, uh, particularly because um, you know she doesn't write a lot about 
Catholics, right. but the worldview is is profoundly informed by her Catholicism. So, and then there's a writer like Alice McDermott who is very much is writing within the milieu. In her case, sort of the same one that I came from or that my parents came from. This a New York and Long Island Irish Catholic milieu. You know, she she uh, she's using the furniture. And in addition, you know, has a worldview that I think is informed by Catholicism. And then I think, you know, you could probably point to writers who just have the furniture, you know, who are writing about a, you know, Catholic immigrant enclave or something like that, but whose actual worldview is not importantly informed by Catholicism. Yeah. Well, you made reference, kind of hinted at earlier, uh, what you like to read or what you find yourself reading lately. But so who and what are you reading these days? Who and what am I reading these days? I'm actually reading a lot of philosophy at the moment for the book that I'm working on now, which is a nonfiction book um, about faith and also about my sort of intellectual journey back to Catholicism, which involved reading a lot of atheist philosophers. So I'm rereading a lot of work that I read in my 20s and 30s, and I'm also reading some new things. In terms of fiction, which is what I'm almost always reading for pleasure, um, I, I finished not long ago Carl Ove Knausgaard's new book, The Morning Star, he, of course, wrote the My Struggle series, this long series of autofiction uh, novels, and this this new book, which is much more – it's tough to say conventional because it's such a strange book, but it's much more conventionally a novel in the sense that it is about made-up characters having experiences is really astonishingly good. It's really – it's wonderful, and it's another, it's another doorstopper. Well – Christopher Bea, thank you so much for coming to be with us. Thank happy you for coming to, to be it. at the conference. And, I'm uh, happy to be here. And uh, have a great day. Thank you. Thank you to Christopher Bea. Find a link to his website, ChristopherBea.com, in the show notes. Subscribe to Ethics and Culture Cast so that you can always get the latest episodes by visiting ethicscenter.nd.edu slash podcast. We would love your feedback. Please review the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and email your suggestions to cecpodcast at nd.edu. Our theme music is I Dunno by Grapes, licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution License. We'll see you next time on Ethics and Culture Cast. Until then, make good decisions. Good decisions.